Hello, I'm Dr. Edward Snell, President and CEO of Houtman Woodward Medical Research Institute in Buffalo, New York. And you are at the point of learning with my friend, Dr. Peter Horn. For over 60 years, the Houtman Woodward Institute has worked to find cures for diseases like COVID-19, cancer, and others that impact us today. Our renowned researchers study proteins in normal and diseased states, and what they learn provides a foundation for developing medicines, therapies, and cures. One of our scientists, Dr. Sarah Bowman, has devoted much of the past year to studying the structures of proteins within SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Today, she'll be talking with Pete, who has helped support our education programs here at HWI. I look forward to their conversation, and I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show... I will say it's an incredible time to be a scientist. Dr. Sarah Bowman on the critical importance of basic science, now and for the future. All you have to do is look at what's been happening over the past few decades, right? Where we have things like SARS, MERS, Zika, Ebola, a variety, not, those last two are not coronaviruses, but they are infectious agents that cause severe disease. And, and to kind of, and now of course with SARS-CoV-2 causing COVID-19, that that these are things that are going to continue to happen. And so anything we can do to gather information um, to help us understand the the basic biology, the basic structures, how how these things work, how we can stop them is is absolutely important. I hope that, you know, in some ways that our experience in the pandemic kind of culturally worldwide helps us to kind of really recognize the role of science and the role of structural biology in 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 helping kind of deal with these types of things you know frankly and i i don't mean to be alarm alarmist but you know we we can anticipate other kind of things happening and and so that is something that i think we should all you know kind of collectively be thinking about okay so how, how, how do what have we learned from this and you know how do we move forward with with that information all that and much more coming right up on this episode of point of learning stick around dr sarah ej bowman earned her PhD in chemistry at the University of Rochester, and then worked as a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, as well as Los Alamos National Laboratory. For the last year, she has focused on SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Dr. Bowman is director of the High Throughput Crystallization Screening Center and associate research scientist at the Hoffman Woodward Institute, aka HWI here in Buffalo, where I was fortunate enough to get to know her a little bit in recent years as I helped to support the Institute's education programs. Since the outbreak of COVID-19 in the U.S., Sarah's lab has been studying key components that make up the novel coronavirus. At the Crystallization Center, a facility that over the past 21 years has supported over 1,000 labs around the world, Crucial non-infectious elements of the virus are coaxed into crystals that can help researchers see 
the otherwise invisible structure of the virus. Knowing what these extremely small viral parts look like helps researchers understand how new or existing drugs might be effective in fighting the virus. Sarah, thanks so much for sitting down today. I do have some idea about how busy you are. Thanks for having me. Before we get into what you've been up to lately, and because this is a show about what and how and why we learn, I wanted to begin by noting that you did not wander around as a seven-year-old with like pipettes and, and beakers, rocking a lab coat, dreaming that one day you'd be helping to cure disease. In fact, you have said that you didn't like science as a kid, or, or at least in high school. What changed for you and how? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I actually got my first uh, undergraduate degree in English literature and women's studies. I didn't take any science or math classes at all in my you know, first, first round of college. Um, and I was working at a bookstore, a small independent bookstore in, in uh, Denver, Colorado, the Tattered Cover. And I had a number of uh, 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 people who I was training. I was in personnel in the human resources department who were in college taking science classes. And I was like, these people seem a lot more interested in science than like, it, it seems a lot more interesting than, than anything I encountered when I was, you know, trying to memorize things, which I'm horrible at. Um, and so I, th- I think one of the things that happens is that, and maybe it's not as bad anymore, but um, the, you know, high school educational system in science really becomes about memorizing a bunch of facts. And you really lose a lot of the uh, wonder and amazingness of science where, uh, where you just, you know, get to try to discover things and learn new things. And it's a constant kind of constant joy to just kind of do science. Um, and, and I think that does a, a big disservice to, to a lot of a lot of students who, who maybe, like me, aren't good at memorizing things and uh, instead just, you know, would love to learn things that are really interesting. And so I, I went back to school and I got I got a another a second undergraduate degree in chemistry so it was there it was your friend's enthusiasm for what they were thinking about and but really but you went for chemistry like (laughs) that's a that's a good question so i i went um back to school and i took a couple of classes i took a general biology class like a a a basic math it might have been like trigonometry I, okay. I can't even remember. Maybe algebra. Okay. Uh, it was, and then um, and then chemistry. And it turned out that uh, I had this absolutely fantastic chemistry instructor who I'm still in touch with. Um, and um, it instead of being a bunch of memorization, which biology still was <laughs> in that class, um, it, it was. It was just amazing, and I completely fell in love with it. And I said, wow, well, what else can you do with chemistry? And I found myself uh, on the path to finding um, finding myself with a second bachelor's degree. So, so you, it sounds like you certainly had a, a, an instructor that you connected with, and that's, that's huge. Um, right. But we, do you remember, was there, I mean, was there a moment? I'm just thinking about this because to me, you know, I found a lot of chemistry more abstract you know, say, than, than biology or physics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, was it, was it an experiment? Was it a property of something? Was it, you know, 
was there was there a flash at any point, literal or you, metaphorical? You know, I, I think that it was a it, it it was a series of recognizing that like an understanding of how molecules are actually kind of made and what different things are made up of and understanding the periodic table and how electrons are organized and and then from there kind of going into biochemistry and you know physical chemistry and really kind of delving into all of these just amazing things and you know experiments probably not just really a a a kind of a gathering of information that just fit in my head in terms of how 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 the world works and and so and I had a lot of really great instructors. I was actually at uh, Metropolitan State College of Denver, um, which is a you know university in the middle of Denver, and uh, um, and had and they have they do a lot of teaching. They they have you know some tremendous professors there. So. Well, this was, I, I was going to ask you, it sounds like you ju- you answered a question that I was going to ask, which was, you know, uh, because it sounds like you didn't click with science so much, you know, in, in high school or even in college the first time through to see, you know, is there something that you'd recommend about changing or, or making sure is included in the teaching of science that wasn't included in your experience of, of, of science? Um it, but it sounds like, as opposed to leaning heavy on memorization, which which sometimes happens, to lean more into the you know the wonder and the mm-hmm. and the marvel of it and the in right. the natural world and allow kids to experience that in some way. Right, and you know it it can be broken down into kind of you know different areas for different age groups and things like that. Right, where you know instead of kind of memorizing a whole list of different things you kind of ask a question like you know simple things why why is the sky blue why you know why why i i can't think of anything well well i mean but uh, our our, uh, friend of the friend of hwi alan alda uh, from his communicating Mm -hmm. science center uh, the center Mm -hmm. for communicating science you know he has this famous flame challenge that began with you know, begin with this uh, this story of asking, you know, like, well, how does fire work? You know, or how right. does a flame work? Like, how, how does that actually happen? Like, what is, what's the science behind that? Which, of course, is not actually, you know, an easy matter necessarily to it's understand. It's not an easy right? matter. But right. when you when you start yeah. talking to kids about that yeah. stuff, and, and uh, kids, adults, it actually doesn't matter, right? Yeah. When, if you, I, I think that a lot of people get scared about science and mm-hmm. about oh, gosh, that's way too tough. Wow, you know, you do some really hard things. And it's like, actually, you know, there, I think there's ways you can kind of talk about the different different things that are happening to, to help to help people. And, you know, I, I can say that to, often as scientists, that's not the, that's not something we're trained to do, right? We're not really, it's not part of kind of the natural training to learn how to talk to non-scientists so uh, about about what we do what you need is more podcasts you need need (laughs) more podcast conversation and then you can practice and then uh, there's practicing that's what i think yeah. Okay. Well, one of so the, we'll do like one a month for. <laughs> oh, don't threaten me with a good time, Doctor Bowman. I'm right here. Uh, if uh, one of the what are the what are the aspects? And I don't know if this is a definition of thinking like a scientist, but I remember this uh, reading Carl Sagan's "The Demon Haunted World: um, Science as a as a Candle in the Dark." 
um, which I think was mid-90s, but it seems kind of prescient talking about the, the danger of pseudo science and things mm. that pass themselves off. But it, at one point he talks about the disposition of scientists or great scientists as having these things in common. And one is a real sense of wonder, mm-hmm. you know, that this appreciation for the marvels of the mysteries of the natural world, uh, but then also that's tempered with or in dialogue with um, a, a real skepticism, um, asking questions about how that works and why that works. So I wanted to put this question to you uh, before we get into some of your own work. You know, you 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 mentioned that you have this background in English, brava, um, and and women's studies. You know that you did before. You know, so you know, so you were immersed in some disciplines that were, you know, pretty different in terms <laughs> of the approach to subject matter. Right. Uh, usually, the ways that they're engaged and taught before you have this very increasingly extensive and intensive science training and then experience as a practicing scientist. Is there anything to the idea of, of, of thinking as a scientist as opposed to thinking, you know, because you've you kind of done it in different ways. You went through a certain part of your life as a, you know, pretty, pretty avowed non-scientist. It, 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 do you think there's a, a way that you approach scientific problems differently? Is it a kind of discipline to it? Is there a rigor to it that's different? Not that we don't think rigorously over in English or, you know, in social sciences or other kind of cross-disciplinary areas, but is there anything to that or is that just kind of one of those things people say? I, you know, the, again, it's a really good question because, you know, when I was, I have to agree with the characterization of, um, you know, you have a sense of wonder and a sense of skepticism kind of combined when, when you're kind of doing science and you, you doing science. Um, um, and in part that's because uh, you, you have ideas about how something should be working or how it might work. And so you come up with experiments to kind of test that. And then you run the experiment and, Many, many times what you discover is that it's nothing like what you thought. And so you have to kind of go back to the drawing board and go, well, okay, I have to, I have to reevaluate kind of the, the kind of with this new information that I've, I've gained from, from my experiment, uh, you know, and, and that's kind of just a basic science, um, kind of approach to things. And I think it's one of the things that is, hard for people to think about in terms of scientists because we're supposed to be experts and know what we're talking about all the time. And, and a huge part of our discipline is that, okay, well, we know what we're talking about and then we're going to test it and then we're going to figure out where we were wrong about, about those things. In terms of how, are the disciplines themselves very different? So I'll tell you a, a, a small story. I was When I was uh, finishing my English literature degree, I um, had an opportunity to go to graduate school for English literature to continue studying uh, this 18th century novelist that I'd, I'd been studying in in uh, college. So my my first kind of presentation at a at a conference was actually in English literature uh, when I was an undergrad. All right. Um, so, um, and I I thought about it and I was like, you know. The thing that would be really horrible about that for me is that I, I read a lot and I it's very important to me is that I didn't want to have to just 
keep reading and essentially being very analytical and tearing apart kind of the language and and the reading and so on and so forth. And so that that's where I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to go work at a bookstore and, and kind of figure out my life for a little bit, um, which I did. And, and in reality, in science, it's very similar. You are very analytical. You tear things <laughs> you apart. Up you tearing up viruses is what he's going to say. Um, and, and in that case, for me, it's great because that that's getting at the okay. details of how things work and, and what, what the, how things are put together and how, how, you know, biology works and how, how the virus works with, with regards to, um, kind of the, the human host and, and things like that. So I, I found myself not wanting to do that in English literature and thrilled to be doing that in science. And, and so I'm not sure how different it really is. Um, kind of when, once you're at like a research level, mm-hmm. um, it's just about, you know, do, would you find that fulfilling kind of work to be to be engaged in? And, you know, for, for science, for me, that it, it is. And, you know, for English, that it would not have been, it, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. I just found myself thinking as you were speaking about the number of musicians who are very fine musicians who have decided not to go into music professionally mm-hmm. because they love it so much and they don't want to depend on it, you know, for their bread and butter. And of course, right. And you uh, don't want to, uh, yeah. you know, I guess ruin it in some way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I understand. I think that's a nice, nice comparison. Cause of course it's dangerous. I think it's just downright fallacious to think that there's a, you know, a different kind of, or, um, you know, certainly a higher level, maybe slightly different critical capacity that somebody who's a scholar of literature takes to texts and words and language, you know, because there is some analysis that goes along with that. Right. Shift back to what you've been working on lately, mm-hmm. which is uh, SARS-CoV-2. First, clarify, um, you know, as you've, as you've clarified to me, you're not a medical doctor, you're not a <laughs> virologist, you know, per se, but rather you study and help others to study the underlying structures of things like proteins or molecules that compose cells and viruses in this case, mm-hmm. um, as well as the pharmaceutical drugs that interact with them in some cases, that's fair to say? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. So I'm gonna link to the show page for this episode, um, the recent feature in the Buffalo News about the work that uh, you and your lab uh, are, have, been, have been doing. It's attracted a great deal of well-deserved attention, but you should know this, including prompting some people who know I've done some work with Hopman Woodward to ask me what exactly your your process is so i've been proud to say i'd be able to double check my story with you soon but i wonder i wonder if i can make the unconventional interview move of telling you how i understand your process 
based on conversations with you and tours of your lab from the before times mm -hmm. um, and asking you to stop me and gently disabuse me of any misunderstandings. And I, and I hope this doesn't come off as mansplaining so much <laughs> as, as laymansplaining, which I don't yeah. know is any better. Okay, your game? Yeah, okay. we, we, we can try that, yeah. All right, Professor, self-induced pop quiz for me. Okay. First, the virus itself that causes COVID-19 is called SARS-CoV-2. That's correct. And that's that's named <laughs> it's named because it's very similar to the virus that causes SARS, the famous severe acute respiratory syndrome that had a global outbreak in 2003 as many of us remember. Yes. Cove is short for coronavirus, mm -hmm. which refers to the shape now very familiar to many of us, a scary little sphere covered in spikes, right? right. And when I say little, <laughs> I mean that if you could get these microscopic death stars to line up, it would take about 600 of them to match the width of a human hair. Not, That's right. Not the length, which of course varies, especially with <laughs> lockdown hairstyles, but the width of one hair. Okay. And it's those spikes on the SARS-CoV-2 virus that attach to a specific protein in our lungs and heart and other organs, which allows the virus to hijack our body's own biochemistry and begin replicating, spreading disease within us. Right? So, so what happens is that the, the spike is able to interact with receptors on the, uh, in the human cells. And, and so you're correct there. Um, and, and that then um, enables- you don't, you don't say hijack? Uh, no, you can say hijack. Hijack. Hijack's okay. fine. It hijacks, but the way it hijacks is okay. is by inserting itself then into the human cell. Okay. And so then um, it, un, it inserts into the human cell and essentially starts kind of opening up, releasing its RNA into the human cell. This might be too detailed. And then it's essentially... Like genetic material, primed. right? It's a right. genetic yeah. material, right. but it's it's really prime. So the human host machinery, then our our cells, as soon as the thing is in us, will just start pumping out all the proteins that it needs to make copies of itself and send wow. it out to the to more of your cells. And so it it's just it's not that it's not hijacking. It's like it's it it grabs onto that receptor, it that helps it pull itself into the cell. And then it and then it really hijacks the cellular machinery inside inside the human cell. So you've been working on some non-infectious parts, right? Like so, right. so as, as small as the virus is, you've been working on some of the even smaller proteins that compose the virus. Right. And again, this isn't this isn't the infectious part. That's happy, uh, it, but these are critical to understanding how that virus works and the right. damage that it does. Right. But, and so this is the part that, you know, like, the, the, so the part that you and your team do is to figure out how to get those proteins that make up the, the virus mm -hmm. to form crystals. Right. Which are, a, you know, a little like salt crystals, but much smaller. Right. And, right. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're but they're, they're, they're replicated. They're like the repeated structure of mm -hmm. that same protein, but in this stable, regular form. Right. And, and they're regular enough that if you shoot an X-ray through them or, mm -hmm. or get some friends in Chicago who can do that for you, right, I guess, right, right? Right. Then you get what are called diffraction patterns. Sidebar. Let's break this concept down. 
Diffraction, etymologically a breaking apart, is a phenomenon involving a change in direction that can happen with any kind of wave, sound waves, water waves, light waves, that pass through an opening or around a barrier in their path. If you've watched river water flowing around a big rock, or if you've been able to hear someone calling to you from behind a tree, you've experienced diffraction. Now, diffraction patterns are probably easiest to understand with visible light, like certain lasers, because they're, you know, visible. Also, lasers are a single point light source, similar to a single sunbeam, if you can imagine that. Link to the show page for this episode is a short YouTube video for physics teachers that demonstrates a diffraction pattern nicely. In the video, there's a green laser pointer fixed onto an apparatus that holds the laser pointer in place. A foot or so away is a thin wire, also fixed onto an apparatus, vertically. The wire is straight up and down. Behind that is a large white screen of paper. When the laser is focused on the wire, what shows up on the paper screen is not what most of us would intuitively expect. For instance, I'd expect to see a vertical shadow from the wire. Instead, what shows up is evidence of interference patterns from light waves bending around the wire. What shows up on the screen is not a vertical shadow, but a dotted horizontal line. In other words, a diffraction pattern, mapping where the shape of the waves coming around one side of the wire match the shape of the waves coming around the other side of the wire. This is called constructive interference and results in the projected dots. Where the light waves don't match up, it's called destructive interference, and the resulting image, or non-image, is the breaks in the dotted line. If you know the math, you can move backwards from this pattern to calculate the width of the wire. And making the crystals is important. See, again, it took me a little bit, a little bit to grasp it. So making the crystals is important because it repeats that protein many times over. Because you, right. you wouldn't get enough information, or it'd be just too small. I guess if you sh if you tried to shoot an X-ray at just one one protein, if you could even find it, right? But if you have lots of them, then you get enough a, a big enough diffraction pattern or enough data to be able to do this next step. Is right. That, right? I, I I'd say that's I'd say that's correct. That's okay. accurate. So so. so and the, and this I don't I mean I don't think you do this part right who they study the diffraction patterns that are produced and they use math mm -hmm. based on the understanding of like how x-rays would interact with various you know materials right and then they kind of back map from those patterns using the math they back map it and say okay well this is what this would look like or does probably looks like in 3D Right, so so you can think about it like this: you you get a diffraction pattern, and then yeah. you you can use the the mathematics that, for instance, um, some of them some of the equations that Herb Hopman um, actually developed. Dr. Herbert A. Hopman was the mathematician who shared the 1985 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his work applying mathematical methods to determine the molecular structure of complicated crystals, as Dr. Bowman is relating. Hopman began working at Hopman Woodward in 1970, well before the institute was renamed in his honor, and remained for 41 years until his death at age 94. A decade later, he is still as much loved for his humanity as revered for his mind.
some of those equations and, yeah. and and then some others because proteins are are a little bit bigger and so have to have to be uh, kind of handled a little differently. And what you get out of kind of working with the data and the math is a electron density map. And then when you have this electron density map, you can you can build a model into that map. Okay, and so. That that's a, a little bit more of a, a a little more of a scientific kind of uh, kind of spin on it. And uh, so what we do at the crystallization center, you're right, is is mostly do the crystallization step. Um, but in in my kind of work, I I also do the send the crystals to a synchrotron, which is a big X-ray source. That's the big X-ray. Okay. Right. Um, and then, um, and then I take the data and actually work with it as well. And oh, so, you do. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So. Okay. So you do so. the. So you you do some of that back mapping that I was talking about. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, not not for everything that comes into the crystallization right. center for for Ooh. kind of my my science project. So. Yeah, you, yeah you've got lots <laughs> right. and lots of samples you've been working with with the, right. now, you you the samples of Cove two that you've been working with they they've just they've been national all across the country. Any mm -hmm. international. Uh, for, well, the for, SARS, for the SARS-CoV-2, we've pretty much been working um, with, with samples from the U.S. Um, okay. we, we have, you know, we, we, we do more than just SARS-CoV-2 uh, proteins, and, and we do have uh, other international people sending samples for, for those as well. My understanding is that there are about 500 coronaviruses that have been identified already. Uh, out of potentially about 5,000 mm -hmm. that scientists believe, you know, likely exist. Mm -hmm. Is it reasonable to believe that the underlying structures of all of, coron of all coronaviruses are similar enough that the work that's already been done will be a, a, a step forward, you know, in the unhappy circumstance of a future epidemic or pandemic caused by one of these more novel <laughs> coronaviruses? Um, I think that any time we can do continued science work on these types of things, it's uh, really important and critical. So one of the reasons that um, we have been able to move so quickly with, I mean, I know it doesn't feel quickly for anybody who's in, you know, still in lockdown and not going out to eat and stuff like that, right? But it's been an incredibly quick process to get vaccines and, and oh, yeah therapeutics kind of move forward. And part of that is because of the research, some of the basic research on, on some of the basic structures that were done on the SARS, um, the original SARS, as well as the MERS coronavirus. And those are two of the now three uh, coronaviruses that, that uh, are highly infectious and transmissible and um, deadly for humans. So there's another four known coronaviruses that infect humans, but they just kind of cause common cold symptoms. Okay. And so, um, so the, the the basic research is incredibly important. And I think I think one of the key things to come out of what's happening right now is that we really do need to have kind of uh, funding and support for for kind of doing this type of work, even when we're not in a pandemic, because it's, I mean, all you have to do is look at what's been happening over the past few decades, right? Where we have things like SARS, MERS, Zika, Ebola, a variety, not, those last two are not coronaviruses, but they are, um, you know, infectious agents that cause, you know, severe disease. And, and 
to kind of, and now, of course, with SARS-CoV-2 was causing COVID-19, that that these are things that are going to continue to happen. And so anything we can do to gather information um, to help us understand the the basic biology, the basic structures, how, how these things work, how we can stop them is, is absolutely important. You know, they're, they're none of them so similar to each other that we can go, oh, great, we can, we know exactly how to treat this once, once something arises. And, and that's coming out even just with the SARS-CoV-2. We know a tremendous amount about this virus now. We know how it, you know, we know how it transfers. We know what a lot of the proteins look like. We know some drugs that might actually, you know, uh, stop it from replicating once it infects a cell, once it infects a human. Um, but, you know, we've now got a couple of mutations that are coming up that impact the ability of, may impact the ability of the va vaccine to, you know, the various vaccines to actually stop it from from kind of causing an infection. So, you know, I think the basic science is absolutely critical. And, and I hope that, you know, in some ways that our experience in the pandemic kind of culturally worldwide helps us to kind of really recognize the role of science and the role of structural biology in, in, in helping kind of deal with these types of things. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> That's, it's my soapbox, okay? <laughs> I, I, that, that's, it, it's, it's, an, it's an important one to, to stand up on. And I just wanted to reiterate that when you say basic science, you're talking about like the structural structural biology in this case in this case the, you know the, the, uh, yeah because it's so you know I, I know uh, you know I collaborate now in part because of the pandemic I'm collaborating with a virologist who mm -hmm. you know studies but she studies coronaviruses and so um, you know when when people aren't interested in it um, then funding kind of goes down and it becomes very hard to study these things right? And so I'm, when I say basic science, I'm talking about definitely the structural biology, um, because that's the basic science that I'm engaged in, but also the, you know, how do viruses kind of get transmitted? How uh, the basic biology behind kind of how, how, you know, how do the aerosol droplets like actually, you know, contain the virus? What's the humidity required to, to actually you know, let the viruses live because these are all things that would would help in in a future pandemic. Which, you know, frankly, and I I don't mean to be alarm alarmist, but I, you know, we we can anticipate other mm -hmm. kind of things happening, and and so that is something that I think we should all, you know, kind of collectively be thinking about. Okay, so. How, how, how do what have we learned from this and you know how do we move forward with with that information um so couple questions about the uh, the culture of science um, there's been unprecedented international focus and cooperation on COVID-19 so what's it like to
to be working in science at this time, by which I mean, how do you think about the pros and, and possible cons about redirecting so much energy toward one problem? Well, you know, it's a, I will say it's an incredible time to be a scientist. You know, we are confronting something that is a, you know, major threat that everybody recognizes as a, as a major threat. Um, I, maybe most everybody recognizes as a major threat. And so I, I think that there's a, a, a real uh, value placement um, kind of culturally worldwide on scientists and, and what scientists are doing. Um, and to be in the community of scientists who are working together and collaborating um, and putting their work out, um, sometimes without everything being published yet and, and making sure that structures are available and results are available is just incredible. So it's it's really enabled, I think, a, um, an increase in kind of open access and open science, which I think ultimately benefits science. It um, Because it you know, science can be a little competitive. And, and so, you know, we're, we're in a period where, where instead of the competitiveness, there's a lot of collegiality and, and helpfulness and, and working together. Um, you know, obviously a lot of kind of uh, funding has been, you know, shifted in a lot of people's projects. You know, I, I didn't work on, on anything, I think anything viral related until, right. you know, around this time last year and so uh it so it, it it does shift things and it has shifted things i think for a lot of people you know i i don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing you you sometimes kind of start start working on things because you you have discovered it and you find it very interesting and and you want to continue to work on it so yeah but, but that might be a nice example which is to say like the stuff you were working on before it wasn't viruses but it wasn't unimportant right right, <laughs> we're, right we're just doing it for fun right, right. and so but you've had to you've had to kind of table that for a year right. you know i'm just in i don't know i'm just i'm interested in that you know thinking about like um you know the, the again the, the the possible downs of things that may have been neglected right. you, know? you know i i think it's gonna it, so we don't know yet. We don't know yet. <laughs> well, here's, here are some things that we we do know. I mean, you know, I, I can say that there, you know, there was a period where the only samples we were running were samples for SARS-CoV-2, and that was fine because pretty much everybody was kind of closed down. So graduate students and postdocs and scientists weren't in their labs generating samples. Mm -hmm. So there was a tremendous kind of. Uh, stopping of a lot of stuff and i think that that's you know people are getting back into their labs and and kind of you know have staggered uh schedules and things like that but you know when i when i talk to kind of my colleagues who who have you know graduate students and and you know <laughs> they they packed up computers and sent them home to you know have their lockdown and and at that point you know your science is completely interrupted It'll be interesting to see what happens to, to kind of the scientific community and, you know, to kind of early stage investigators who are really, you know, you only have a few years to kind of get kind of results and get funding and, and things like that. And be, before, you know, you, you have to kind of move on typically. And so um, and so it, 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 it's a it's it's a stressful time, I think, for a lot of scientists. So. Finally, um, 
I mean, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know. I just wanted to say on behalf of a you know of somebody who's uh, part of a larger community benefiting from the work that you all are doing. Um, you know, I ha- and I have some sense of how hard you, in particular, and your colleagues in HWI are working. You know, it is not um, not unappreciated, certainly. Finally, I wanted to ask about women in science. Um, you know, I know that you've highlighted uh, several of the outstanding female scientists, such as Professor Kara Bren mm-hmm. at the University of Rochester, Professor Catherine Drennan at mm-hmm. MIT, in whose labs you've worked and who mentored you to some extent. They definitely mentored um, me. I also know that one of my favorite <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> definitely mentored you. I, I also know that one of my favorite facts about the high school program in bioinformatics at HWI, led by uh, Dr. William Duax, is that the participants are usually. Mm-hmm. 50-50, you know, kids who identify male and female. And this reflects HWI itself, where women are well represented on the science staff, I think pretty much 50%. Um, but I still believe worldwide, only about 30% of science researchers are women. Do you see the balance of this traditionally male-dominated field improving uh, quickly enough? Or is there something in particular uh, that you think would be helpful uh, to, to see change? Is it changing fast enough? Of course not. No. <laughs> you know, there, there's a there's a, a definitely a leaky pipeline. This is for women. This is for you know underrepresented minorities. This is for you know uh, people who identify in in different ways. It, it's a it's a hard path to choose to be on, um, and it is uh, I think can be made harder by not having people around you who you know. <laughs> Have have your your similar experiences, right? Um, and so, um, what what can be done? Uh, a lot, you know. And and some things are being done by a lot of people, you know. Um, you know, it, it, <laughs> when uh, so so here's here are some examples, you know. And and we've had a somewhat lively discussion uh, and. I've, Felt this was before the pandemic actually happened. About you know, well, what happens when you're when you have a conference and you you have a session and there are no, it's all you know, white men who are speaking. Okay, yeah. so what what? How, wait, how does that even happen? That because and you know, there's there's people who can be kind of um, how do we say maybe defensive about that and say, well, sure. these are these are the top people in the field and these are the people who are really well known and. And so I think, you know, one of the things that many people are trying to do and, you know, and uh, is say, okay, great. Um, We're going to make sure that we have kind of, you know, as diverse of a group of people speaking as we possibly can. And, you know, I I run a workshop, I've run it for the past three years at Stanford Synchrotron Light Source. And... um, And every year we, we essentially bring in speakers and we last year it was virtually, um, which actually enabled a larger international participation. Um, so so that was great. But we, we always um, try to have, um, obviously, various uh, a kind of gender parity, as well as early stage investigators, people who work at government right. labs, people who work in industry, people who are at major research institutes, people who are primarily um, undergraduate institutes at various career stages doing a variety of different types of experiments. And what it's actually done is generate this really uh, engaged and um, 
and interactive group that I think maybe otherwise wouldn't have kind of come together and started talking in the in the ways that that it has over the past few years. And so, um, so that's you know there there are things that can be done that don't take tremendous effort, but they do take some effort, right? Some some thoughtfulness about right. like, some thoughtfulness it, it, about about how yeah. to do it. Yeah. So. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and I, I think that the, the pandemic, you know, by, by all kind of reports is, is potentially going to be difficult for, um, you know, women with children typically take more of the kind of caring oh, sure. care burden. Um, and so, you know, if you are, uh, you know, on a tenure clock and, and, you know, having to produce a certain amount of stuff, your lab shut down, you can't you know, do any work and, you know, you, you have to care for your kids instead of, you know, sending them to school. It, it can, I think, be a, a tough thing. And well, so staggering stats about the disparity and people who have needed to come out of the workforce in order to right. you know, take care of, you know. And, right. Yeah. And I, I think that I think that 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 this, you know, so like I said, it's a really great time to be a scientist, but it's also, uh, you know, a really, we, we're not going to know what the kind of ultimate um, kind of impact of, of things is in terms of the pandemic, um, for, I think, for some time. And I think in some ways that will depend on what kind of various institutional responses are toward toward the different kind of disparities that, that occur. That's a wrap for today's show. Thanks so much to Dr. Sarah E.J. Bowman for taking time to talk about her life-saving work. Pointed Learning has recently joined the Patreon family, where you can show your support for this show about what and how and why we learn, from theater to leadership, psychology to poetry to structural biology, for as little as a dime a day. Check out the various membership tiers at patreon.com slash pointoflearningpodcast. For this episode, Patreon members will be able to view a few more technical segments that may be of interest on the Point of Learning Patreon page. Now, this episode has its own YouTube companion replete with supplementary visuals, so be sure to visit and subscribe to the Point of Learning YouTube channel. You can also find links to the transcript and other related materials on the show page for this episode. Thanks, as always, to Shafer James for intro and outro musics. And thanks, too, to DJ Sluggy for special music featured throughout this episode. Sluggy is a versatile creator based in the Denver area who was pleased to contribute to this episode showcasing another remarkable woman who discerned her mission in Denver. I am proud to share that once upon a time, Sluggy was my student for 11th and 12th grade English. Finally, thanks to you for listening and subscribing, rating, and reviewing this show. If you can think of just one person who will enjoy this episode as much as you did, please share. It will mean most coming from you. A member of the Lyceum Consortium for Education Podcasts, Point of Learning is written, edited, mixed, and produced in sunny Buffalo, New York by me. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you just as soon as I can with another episode all about what and how and why we learn. How old does a coronavirus have to be before we stop calling it the novel coronavirus? I mean, it just, it just seems too fabulous.
like at this point it's not really novel <laughs> like we're we're all really pretty familiar with it yeah. you know it's that and big gray album. thing with the spiky things on it right we That's yeah it. i i think i don't think i've but i i haven't personally been calling it the novel coronavirus to have it age for, out. yeah, yeah. For, for a while you know i won't, I won't, I won't either yeah, yeah.